The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. My hockey mic, yeah, the fold, emihine, called Duncan Greve, talking This is a special one, I think. Uh, this, well, at least for me, like, I've been, I'm a magazine person. I, I've edited magazines, read them um, basically as long as I could read. And one of maybe my very favorite magazine in the world, in some respects, is uh, Bloomberg Business Week, which is, now, Business Week is a, is a, publication that's been around for a long time, probably near, nearly a century. And I don't think it's particularly well known here. I think, you know, it's in some way similar in format to The Economist, a weekly business publication. But it's just a magic publication. It's got it's got incredible design, incredible story ideation. It's got a real sense of flair and tone and knows exactly what it is. And it just, as a whole product, is just beautifully made. And so I've subscribed to it for probably eight or nine years. And I remember reading a story a couple of years ago, it would have been almost exactly two years ago, about nasopharyngeal swabs and a, and a drama between a, the cousins who owned the only factory which made them uh, in in the US. And reading it and then going, man, this is great, and, and looking at the byline because you know, that's what journalists do. And it was Olivia Carvel. And I was like, that name's familiar. And and then realizing it was the same Olivia Carvel who'd been part of the Herald's investigative team and and a really key reporter for stuff bef- and, and the Christchurch Press before that. And I was like, how has this happened? And then sort of basically caught up on, on her career and had, had wanted to basically speak to Olivia about this story and about Business Week, which is a publication I massively geek out over uh, for quite a while. And as luck would have it, she has taken advantage of the loosening of our pandemic travel restrictions to to come home from New York to, to visit Fano down here and was kind enough to take a break from her holiday to, to uh, come on the fold and Honestly, it's kind of a masterclass in in journalism, I think, what she delivers to us here, you know, in both the sort of stickability and the doggedness, not just with the story that there is that, but also the the willingness to say, I'm going to have to basically go back to zero and learn again. And she's done that at least, I think, sort of three times in her career. 
And even though she's only been working for probably 10 years, the fact that she was willing to do that to, to admit that there was more to learn ultimately is what's gotten her to a place where she is now a reporter for Business Week and is, has written cover stories for this you know, publication, which is one of, if not the best business uh, publication in the world. You know, that's, that's just an extraordinary thing for, for anyone to, to, to done, let alone a, a reporter from the wrong side of the world in, in their early 30s. So we talk about the process of doing that. We talk about her career, which which began at the press three months before the Christchurch earthquakes, and that became her introduction to journalism, which you know a lot of people, quite understandably, the, the tragic weight of that, both personally and professionally, would have been enough to kind of push you out of the career. It, it didn't, and I think we're all the richer for that. You know, we talk about her time in Canada, her time at the Herald, and that amazing investigations team that that um, was there for a, for a while, and is still, in some respects, through the through the mid two thousands or twenty ten, sorry. Uh, and then about her road to Business Week and what it's like working for Bloomberg, which is just this very strange, enormous kind of media organization come technology company hybrid. It's it's really, really fun. She's super articulate and passionate and the lessons this contains for writers and reporters about how to get better and and stay with a story and the value of editing, it's it's just a whole lot. I really enjoyed it um, and I hope you do too. This is Olivia Carvel from Bloomberg Business Week on The Fold. Kia ora, Olivia, and welcome to The Fold. Kia ora, thanks so much for having me. As, as we were just saying off air, I'm so excited to have you on because, both because of your career in CV, which I think is, is really interesting in itself, but also you are a window into Bloomberg, an organisation I'm fascinated with, but Business Week, which I think isn't particularly well known as a magazine in New Zealand, but it is also... I think one of the very best magazines in the world in, in so many different ways. And I want to get into that. But I was wondering if you could start by just telling me how feature writing got its hooks into you. I've always been interested in narrative and through journalism, trying to find people's stories. I think any reporter you ask, you know, why did you get into this job? It's about the people that we write about and trying to bring them to life in a way. And I think that feature writing gives us the opportunity to do that, to um, explain what a person looks like, how they're acting, to try and bring them to life on the page. And I think breaking news stories, we don't have the luxury of, you know, time and word length to get into that kind of detail. But certainly for me as a reader, it's fiction and reading about characters and books, which is why I fell in love with writing. So... I feel like all of all of that background kind of led me into feature writing, and and you can really feel that in in those um, that those sort of business week stories that you've you've written over the past couple of years that 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 sense of character. But you you sort of you, you're from Christchurch, that's right, and. You were working at the press during the earthquakes, is that is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I actually started three months before the 2011 earthquake. It was quite the introduction to journalism. So how did that, you know, that, because that is you know, probably one of the signal events of our lifetimes mm-hmm. in terms of as a, a complex, tragic reporting 
assignment. You know, what was it like being at the press through that period, and how did how did you sort of report on it? How did it inform the way your career developed? I didn't really expect, as a junior reporter, to be faced with that kind of tragedy and that kind of event right out the door. It was awful. Speak to anyone on the ground that day. It was a really tough day for not just reporters, anyone in Christchurch. And at the press, you know, part of our building collapsed. We lost a colleague in there. And we were sent out into the streets to try and cover a disaster as it was unfolding. We were on the ground before emergency services were. And I think that I really struggled looking back now. I really struggled with that line between being a a journalist and bearing witness to a disaster and putting down my notepad and pen and trying to help people who were in the rubble or trying to help people who were lost or freaking out. And I still looking back, actually now, bring, you know, I didn't think we were going to get into this topic and just talking about it. it. It's emotional. It's tough. I found a close family friend that day who was seriously injured. And I that, that's when I put down my notepad and pen to help her. But prior to that, if I didn't know them, I just kept walking, which is a pretty confronting thing to face as a, you know, 23-year-old junior reporter. So I was at the press for about five years and Every story was touched by the earthquake. I can't tell you the number of times I wrote earthquake ravaged in a sentence. Everything I did was, how's the mental health of Cantabrians? How is the city in the aftermath of the earthquake? Every year on the anniversary, I'd be writing about a family member who lost a loved one in that disaster. And it just takes a toll on you. How do you leave that kind of content in the computer screen and walk away. And I didn't know how. I was afraid that my career was going to be guided by this disaster that broke my hometown. And I thought that I was, I didn't have an identity as a journalist beyond that. I was afraid that that's who I was and that's all I was going to be. And I think that when I moved overseas for the first time, I think I was running away from that. I wanted to try and prove that I could be a reporter without a natural disaster to springboard off, that I knew how to do the job without having that attachment or that topic to write about. It's, I mean, it's, it's unimaginable. And I, I feel like, you know, it was something that affected the country, but unless we were there, you would, we just, the rest of us reporters, we, mm. we have a level of detachment from it. Sure, you know, I think that there's a thing happening right now with, with the, the pandemic that has some of those qualities and, you know, you can feel that it is, there's a sort of when is it okay to, to sort of step away? How do I be something else as, as well as this? So did you go overseas and then came back to the Herald? Is that? Yeah. And I, you also asked a question before that I didn't answer. You asked what was it like to be part of the press newsroom through that disaster. And I did just want to say, never before have I been in a newsroom where you, your colleagues kind of become your family in a way. I know that sounds super cliche and lame, but that day brought us together in um, really weird ways. And people who have left not only the press, but left journalism altogether will still reach out to me on the 22nd of February and just say, hey, like, remember how crazy that day was? What's happening? Like, hope you're okay. And it's so nice to hear from people years later who, who were, you know, we were together 
and the madness and the chaos on that day. And we still remember um, years on. I, I do recall one moment when Andrew Holden, who was editor of the press at the time, came up to me when we finally found a space to write in and got laptops working and had the ability to communicate with one another. And it was a really emotional moment where he was this head of the newsroom, you know, the chief, the editor, who I was afraid of and I'd never talked to before. He just came over and hugged me. And I think there was a moment of humanity between colleagues that um, that was just pretty touching and something that I'll always remember. And so I was... I was really scared to leave the press. I was reluctant to leave the newspaper that I had so much pride to write for and that I thought handled that disaster in a really incredible way. We did get a newspaper out to Cantabrians the next day. Like, looking back, holy crap, how did we do that? Just even staying and working in a situation when you had every right to just try Drop and survive everything and run. yourselves. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I, I look back with such fondness and love for that newspaper and my time there. But I did. I needed to, as I said, escape escape the city and escape the identity I'd, I'd created in a way around, around that topic and around that disaster. And so I went to Canada and I uh, didn't have a job and I applied for all of these positions to try and get into the Vancouver Sun and various newspapers over there and was just rejected time and time again. And then the Toronto Star had an internship opportunity come up. So I applied for that and they'd never hired an international before, um, never hired a foreigner. And so I was the first one. And initially I really sucked. And the editor pulled me aside and said, you know, of our crop of interns this year, Olivia, you are at the bottom. So you need to change something about how you're pitching, what you're doing, because it's not quite working for us. Why, why did you suck given you had five, <laughs> five, I mean, A, given where you are, but B, given that you had five years of really quite complex reporting under your belt by that stage to go back to intern, you'd think you'd have, yeah, to, to talk us through what, what, what wasn't working and how you resolved that. I think that in the wake of a disaster, there are stories everywhere. They are not hard to find and they land on your lap. So I didn't have to do a lot of idea generation. I was also writing about the same topic over and over again. Um, when I moved to Canada, I had no idea how their systems worked, how the government worked, how to make a phone call. I didn't know how to use the white pages, really basic stuff that you really have to know. And I was learning, I was on the steady ramp of trying to learn everything while also trying to pitch and trying to land stories that were that were quite tough. I remember they sent me to um, to one of the hospitals when, do you remember the crack smoking, yeah, Rob, was it crack Rob cocaine Ford? smoking mayor, Rob Ford? Yeah. yeah. So he was in hospital at the time with cancer and they sent me there and I, it was my first day and I had to wait outside the hospital and just ambush his brother, Doug, who later became mayor. Yeah. Well, yeah. And try and get a comment from him and there was just this horde of journalists like sprinting after him down the street. They were running up the, the car park in the hospital, like up the spiral stairs. Cameramen were getting pushed to the ground. People were fighting. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm made out for this. This is insane. Um, so I think it was just a reality check and also a culture shock. But that comment did kind of kick me up the ass a bit and made me realize I'm either in it or I'm not. I called my mother the day that the editor pulled me aside and told me that I really needed to sharpen up and... I cried and said, I'm not good enough. These journalists are so much better than me. I need to come home. And she said to me, give it three months. And if you still feel the same way, 
I'll pay for your ticket home because I couldn't afford one at that time. That's good mum. That's good advice. And so I gave it three months and I thought I'd give it my all and I landed, um, I think, seven A1 stories in that three-month period. So Pretty good. Yeah, I felt pretty good at the end of that, but it it was tough. And then... I really enjoyed my time at the Toronto Star as well. The internship was great. You jump around a lot of different teams and different beats, learning about the newsroom. And then I joined their investigative team, which had always been a goal for me. And just as I'd gotten settled in the job that I wanted and was happy, um, I got deported. My visa got rejected and I got kicked back to New Zealand. Like deported, deported? Like <laughs> Well, I say deported, it might be too strong a word, but I think December 23rd, the lawyer who was handling my visa called me and said, it's been rejected. Unfortunately, you have to return to your country as soon as possible and you can't even go back to the newsroom and clear your desk. You're not allowed on site. So, yeah, that was not great. And I got sent back home and luckily the New Zealand Herald were just building out an investigative team. So it was perfect timing. And I was able to uh, step into that newsroom in that role. Because that that investigative team, which on some level felt like it was made, broken down, unmade, like, like there, was, there was a lot of change. But I feel like the, the period that you were there, there was a really, it was an amazing group of people and they had a, it had sufficient scale. They were all in the newsroom. Now it's a, some of them are still there, but they're, you know, Fishers Up North, Jared Savage is in Tauranga, and the, the, it doesn't have that sort of sense of momentum that it potentially had at the time. Do you want to talk about that period of your career and, and how you sort of you all worked together uh, through that? Yeah, it was it was awesome to have the opportunity to help build out an investigative team at the Herald and to work with um, some of the best journalists in the country. I formed really close friendships with the individuals on that team, people who I'm still in touch with today, and they all did some amazing stories over that time. I think that we were wanting to foster a sense of investigative journalism in New Zealand and really concentrate reporters in that area of journalism. And I think that they managed to achieve that and accomplish it. It was a a great team. It was led by, you know, really good editors. And it kind of felt like looking back, kind of the glory days, having us all together, working together, going to our weekly meetings. And we'd just throw around ideas, chat about different things that we have coming up and try and feel the vibe as to whether people are interested in these topics or not. And it was, uh, Chris Reed was leading the team for a long time. He was a really great editor and there was just a, a lot of support. And um, again, that sense of camaraderie, I guess, around not a disaster this time, but uh, yeah, a love and passion for investigative reporting. So from there, you you go to Columbia and and you did your masters, and I was sort of, is it correct that you you there was like finance, accounting, corporate finance, op- operations, like some stuff which you know, like I run a a media business, and I look at that and I go, oh no, not not for me, <laughs> thanks. Probably to to everyone has detriment. I apologise to to our people who are listening right now, <laughs> but the. That's a that's a big, you know, you were walking willingly into a place that, you know, a lot of journalists, even business journalists, that some of those elements that they're sort of, for someone who loves character and so on, they can feel like that's a bit abstracted from it. What made you, what attracted you to business journalism and those, that getting into the, the teeth of those pieces? Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't tell Columbia in my application that I had failed math in high school. <laughs> um 
It was really hard. I did not have an interest in business journalism before I applied. I did want to go to Columbia. I thought it would be an incredible opportunity. And I did speak to their career team and told them that I'd find it very difficult to attend Columbia and pay the insane college fees in the US and that I needed scholarship support. And they suggested to me, or maybe nudged, I should say, towards the business track because that's where the biggest scholarship fund is. Right. So it was a it was scary for me to apply for a business and finance position at Columbia. But when I started really thinking about it, I did come to realize that that is a massive weakness in my resume. I had no idea how to follow the money. I didn't know how to write about issues through a financial lens. I didn't know how to read company financial reports or business statements. I couldn't cover an earnings release. And I think that it taught me so much more than what the other tracks would have. There was a health and science track and a um, like foreign correspondent kind of political track, an arts and culture track. I would have felt a lot more comfortable in all of the others. I think business would have been the the one that I felt like a fish out of the out of water, and I really was when I when I started there. But I think that that's good as well because it meant that um, I was really going to learn. I wasn't just going to try and just get Columbia on my CV and move on from there. I was going to actually be sitting in the library every weekend for 10 months trying to understand financial accounting. And I still don't know if I really figured it out. Corporate finance was the hardest class I've I've ever been in. Um, That exam was horrifying. It was like nine hours and just, yeah, I I don't know how I passed, but, but I did. So great result. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Just the idea of a nine hour exam is making me want to like run from the room. Um, <laughs> what was your path to, to Bloomberg? Like, was it straight out of school or, you know, and, and, and why that organization? I think that when you apply to a school like Columbia, you have this idea in your mind of what it's going to be like when you graduate and walk out and that all of these big media publications are going to be opening their arms and welcoming you in. And that is not the reality. I've talked to quite a number of students who have considered going to the school since and explained to them that both the pros and the cons about it. I think that when you come into a program like that as a mid-career journalist, it's quite it's quite tough. You're rolling the dice. And when I graduated, I did have, you know, eight years experience in Canada and New Zealand. And I felt like I could walk into a US newsroom and know what I was doing after studying at Columbia, but I didn't have any American clips. I'd only written for Canadian and New Zealand publications, and you're just not competitive over there. The number of people who apply for open jobs is like hundreds. So your application is not going to get noticed or picked up if you don't come from one of the bigger outlets. You know, if you're applying from a New Zealand outlet, which they're not familiar with, it's very hard to get recognized. So I decided very early on when I was at Columbia that I was going to apply for internships to get a foot in the door at some of these big publications. And what I decided is that Bloomberg was the place I wanted to go for a few reasons. One is that they're really supportive with foreign workers. 
they are great when it comes to visa sponsorship. Not many outlets are. So Bloomberg has helped me get two visas since I've been there, and they're also helping me to get on the track to get a green card. And they're great from that respect. But more so than that, they help you learn how to understand actual business reporting, because I'm sure you've heard before, being in a classroom doesn't really teach you the ropes of actual journalism. I think there are a lot of reporters out there who didn't even study, have just walked into the job. And so for me, I did learn the um, the nuts and bolts of financial reporting. I, I learned what a business statement was. I learned how to cover an earnings report. But in terms of actually dealing with you know, the PR pushback, dealing with these companies, pitching stories, coming up with ideas, being in the just the daily grind of business journalism, you can't really teach that. And Bloomberg is the best place to go if that's what you want to learn. They have beat reporters. They have teams that cover everything from muni bonds to hedge funds to billionaires to the markets. So I wanted to immerse myself in business journalism and uh, Bloomberg was just the, the best outlet. So I did apply for their internship and I walked out of Columbia into an internship program with um, a lot of American well, students, now working journalists, who were in their early 20s and had never been in a newsroom before. So I did have to eat a pretty big humble pie, um, but it was worth it in the end. At Z, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, one thing, this is massive, this whole podcast is super self-indulgent, but this, this is up there. So there's a book that I'd wanted, I'd wanted to read for a long time that isn't really available um, anymore, but I, my wife actually tracked down a second-hand copy for me, and it's called The Bloomberg Way, <laughs> which was like the oh, geekiest God. thing ever. <laughs> um, have you read it? And like, to what extent, because like, basically what it does is kind of codify everything down to the most minute detail that is done in Bloomberg from the sort of the terminal side business to to business week and I found it so geekily fascinating yeah like like is it a sort of a prereq going in and to what extent does it accurately reflect just how kind of precise and controlled the the organization is in terms of what it creates I can't believe you've read that. That is super geeky, <laughs> but I love it. I have also read it. I have a couple of copies at home, maybe struggled through it. It is very, uh, you know, focused on the style, the Bloomberg style, which is quite unique mm. and also the terminal as well. Yeah, I think we refer to it quite a lot in the newsroom just because Bloomberg has different ways of going about things than 
than maybe some other outlets. We are heavily focused in finance and business and we do run a business, which is, you know, the terminal. So people pay for that content. Well, do you want to explain what the terminal is? Because I feel like it's like almost like the original SaaS product there. Well, you know, it's like it's such an interesting, almost unique business and almost no one knows about it. like a $24,000 a year subscription computer thing that's been going for decades. Right. So Bloomberg is really a financial data services company. The terminal is this weird old school looking kind of black box on your computer that pops up and then you need to use a fingerprint swiped sensor to gain access to it. And it's got a black background and the text is an orangey color, which is quite weird when you first start working there. And you can pretty much gain access to financial data for, you know, any public company in the world. Uh, It shows you what's happening in the markets. You can pull data and analytics on everything from, you know, lawsuits related to companies to the movement of oil, um, shipping news uh, that brings up all company press releases. It also brings up all articles that have been written about that company by outside outlets. It brings up their earnings results. You can see how much money they've made going back, you know, years, if not decades. You can see what their share price has been doing. It's an incredible tool for anyone in finance. But also, if you're a journalist, I assume you also have access to it, and that's kind of a huge unlock versus the average kind of workaday business reporter at another publication. Yeah, that's right. It's a it's a great resource for journalists, and um, there's, you know, just a, a world of data there that we can use. I've Talk to a few people who say when they walk into an apartment in New York City where a lot of people have obviously been working from home and they see a terminal sitting there open, it's a bit of a power move. (laughs) If you've got your own terminal login, you know, you're doing pretty well. (laughs) Love that. So... The the, re, the I got first got introduced to Bloomberg through Business Week, which was a publication that it just acquired. It's been around for a long, long time, but it really gave us a quite extraordinary makeover. To the design is, I think, the best in, in magazines. Won heaps of awards for it. it. Has this super modern, slightly chaotic uh, vision, but also has. You know, this real prescribed format in terms of like it's got the short stories, it's got three features in its feature well, and then that that sort of pursuitsy, bougie, increasingly bougie section out the back. It's a fantastic magazine. And you have gone from intern to, you know, I think probably the most prestige part of the Bloomberg writing universe real, real fast. T- tell me how that happened and, and how, you know, what your relationship to Business Week was and is now. I love how much knowledge you have about Business Week. I'm such a geek. (laughs) (laughs) It is a great magazine. When I started at Bloomberg, it was my goal to write for the magazine, and I didn't really think it was going to happen. I was told when I first applied for the internship that it would take 10 years to get on Bloomberg's investigative team and be able to write long-form features, and I was gearing up and prepared for that. I think that it really, for me, came down to luck, to be honest. I'd joined the technology team as a beat reporter covering short-term rental companies and covering, you know, Airbnb and Expedia and was just learning the ropes of business reporting. But I always gravitate towards character-driven stories. If I'm going to write about a business, I want to write about it from the sense of, you know, tension. Who are the people inside that business? Who are the, you know, 
for everyday users or consumers who are being impacted, which is a different style of business reporting than just the traditional company beat of writing about what's going on inside the company, how their finances are going, what are their like acquisition targets, what's the CEO saying, yeah, that kind of stuff. I think there is such a compelling side to business reporting that Business Week does an amazing job at really getting inside these companies and understanding the strategy and the people behind them and um, connecting readers with companies in a way that we don't see in other outlets. So I had a goal of, um, you know, I was hoping that I'd be able to write for the magazine. I pitched them a couple of times, which, you know, didn't work out in those early days, but I just kept kept at it as a beat reporter. And um, I, through the pandemic, I found this, the first ever Business Week story I wrote about was technology related. It was um, how K-pop stands, which if anyone doesn't know what that is, because I didn't when I started writing about it, these are Korean pop fans, crazy Korean pop fans who are obsessed with the bands um, and just have huge passion for them, have the way in which they were impacting U.S. politics. I don't know if you remember, but there the, was the that... Donald Trump stadium. The, the Trump rally Beautiful. and the and the K-pop fans on TikTok telling everyone to buy tickets and not go. And so I wrote a little bit about how the K-pop stands was impacting U.S. politics. And that it's was like my, a Taylor Lorraine story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess it is. Um, and that was a, a really interesting insight. Um, and so after I got a little bit of a taste of what it's like to write for the magazine... I um, kept pitching them and wanting to try and, you know, write for them, work with their editors. So then I I pitched this other really bizarre topic, which is offbeat from what I was doing, about the swab factory. That was, in, I think, the first story of yours I read for Business Week. That was such a yarn. <laughs> so th- 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 tell us about that, because I feel like that that is a classic Business Week story, you know, off your beat, but it has all of that. It's got family and money and the the tension of the moment and bizarre characters. So good. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that was a, a really odd story. I actually had escaped New York City in the peak of the pandemic and went up to um, a little town in Maine. It's called Millinocket. It's close to the Canadian border. And that's where my boyfriend's parents live. So we were trying to get away from the craziness of New York City and went up there. And near Millinocket is this little town called Guildford. And Guildford was producing the only swab that we could use globally to test for the coronavirus at that time. They made the nasopharyngeal swab, I don't think it was used that much in New Zealand, but it was. It was. It was? Yeah. Okay, cool. Because my mum and Nana had never had it before. But um, this is the brain tickler. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. Sick. That was our only thing until very recently. Like the, the rat tests were illegal. Ah. So um, no, we, we, we've had our share of You've their products. You've had your share of nasopharyngeal swabs. Yeah, they are not ideal. So this is the for those who haven't who have been lucky enough to not have had a nasopharyngeal swab done. It's the six-inch swab that goes all the way up your nose to the back of your throat, to the area between your ears that's close to your brain, to, you know, take samples, and that's what they'd test for because the coronavirus would linger in the nasopharynx. And there was this factory in Guildford, Maine, of all places, that was the only producer of nasopharyngeal swabs in the entire country. And so I was up in Maine and I was looking into this company and what are they doing and how's it going just because I was in the area. And then I found this lawsuit between 
the two cousins who owned it. They were suing one another to try and essentially divide the company because they had huge disagreements over the future of it and, you know, where it wanted to go. And one had actually filed a lawsuit to dissolve ownership of the company, saying that they were at such a toxic point in their, you know, in the company's history that they hadn't spoken to one another for like three years. And it blew my mind that the only producer of the one swab that we need to test against COVID is at an an absolute crisis point when the government is just funneling hundreds of millions of dollars into them. So, yeah, I wrote about that for Business Week. And um, they, yeah, as you said, Business Week loves stories about characters, about tension inside companies and creative ways to write about business. And so they, they were really eager for that one. And so subsequent to that, you've really made Airbnb a beat. Like I think the first, I mean, was that a cover story? This, yeah, Airbnb was a cover story. Yeah, and I, and and it was it was about this kind of team that comes in to clean up literal and figurative messes for for the company, kind of black ops. And and since then, you've really sort of owned that. How how did? And obviously, you you were in that that space to begin with, but you sort of leapt up to the big kind of sweeping stories that really the companies don't want to be told. Uh, I'm assuming that you had some quite hectic correspondence around that. Um, Yeah, tell us about that story and how you've come to kind of, because Airbnb is a fascinating company and of all of the big tech companies, it's almost got, in some respects, the cleanest reputation. Brian Chesky, the CEO, has got this quite amazing reputation. They know how to sort of... And I don't think it's done cynically, but you know the way that they encourage people to rent um, places in the U- in sorry in Ukraine um, at, at the start of the invasion and so on, and they've done similar things from time to time. And you've revealed other sides to Airbnb, which are a lot more kind of fraught and complex. Uh, tell us about that story and and how you've come to kind of conceive of that company and make it your own. Yeah, sure. So I was a yeah, I was a beat reporter when I first heard about, you know, this particular issue inside Airbnb. And I wanted to to look into it. I wanted to take some time to understand what the company does in response to violent crimes that occur at its listings. But as a beat reporter, you're pretty busy. You know, you don't have time to just sit down and call 100 people to try and ask questions about this one particular aspect of the company. I'm covering earnings. I'm covering company announcements, I'm going to conferences, I'm busy with all the other companies that I write about. So when Bloomberg offered an investigative fellowship opportunity, I applied and they asked for pitches from beat reporters all over the newsroom. It's a global newsroom. So we, they, Bloomberg has bureaus in almost every country in the world. So they got a lot of applications in and I pitched looking at Airbnb through that lens trying to understand what happens inside the company when things go wrong during a stay. And I think that they were they were interested in that pitch for a few reasons. As you say, Airbnb is so popular today. It's become a verb. You know, mm. you don't just go and stay at a short-term rental property, you go and stay at an Airbnb. Everyone knows what Airbnb is. Everyone, mostly everyone, has, has used the product. And no one really hears about the dark side of it or these safety issues that they come up with. You may have family, friends, or um, people you know who have been conned, who have turned up to a listing and it 
hasn't been there. You know, the address doesn't exist. Or they've asked for a refund because the place was dirty and they never got one. Or pretty minor details like that around stays going wrong. But when it comes to the violent crime, they had a really slick team inside the company that was cleaning all this stuff up. And um, they were doing that to both protect the individual in the middle of the the crisis or the safety incident, but also to to protect and defend the company's reputation. From a PR standpoint, these are hugely damaging incidents. We're talking about murder. We're talking about rape, sexual assault, and sexual assault between a host and a guest. So these are two people that the company has brought together in the online world who have then met in the offline world, in the real world, and it's resulted in... um, violent crimes occurring. So trying to understand what is Airbnb's responsibility here? Is it responsible for this? And I think that it asked a really interesting question about Section 230, which is what we see a lot of debate over in the US. Um, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act essentially shields these big tech companies from responsibility over the content that's posted on their platforms. So Craigslist isn't responsible if it's selling a gun to a minor, for example, or Facebook isn't responsible if someone's going to post a really horrific graphic video of a crime. The companies can argue that they don't have liability over the content. All they do is operate a platform that people can use. And so Airbnb had that defence as well to say, through Section 230, all we are is a platform that's connecting two people who want to buy and sell a product, which is a stay in, in, a, in a home. But it became a bit more complicated for Airbnb because you're talking about bringing strangers together under the same roof. And what they need to work as a platform is trust. They need people to trust one another. And if they don't trust one another, you're not going to use the product. So when really awful things happened, there was an incentive to try and keep them quiet, to try and protect the individual and help them if they can, whether that's paying for them to fly home, paying for health and counselling costs, paying for them to go to a hotel, ironically, you know, get out of an Airbnb and go to a hotel because maybe they'll feel safer, but also doing so in the hopes that they're not going to then turn around and bash the company on social media or speak to, a, you know, a publication like Bloomberg about it. So you've established this kind of home with, with Airbnb and, and technology in the respect, and I thought it was really fascinating what you said about Section 230 and its expansion into our real lives um, to the extent that that's different from our online lives. Um, where where do you sort of, where would you like to go with your career? And, and do you feel like now that you've managed to break into to Business Week and, and have that opportunity to do those kind of deep, long, uh, thoroughly reported investigative features that that's, that's you for, for a while now? Yeah, I hope so. I think that you're only as good as your last story, right? And... Um... I, it took, I've been in the US for five years this coming August, and it took that amount of time to finally get into the job that I was, I was hoping to get when I moved over. And so now that I've got there, I do want to spend some time just, you know, sticking with it and trying to um, write good stories. 
Bloomberg is an incredible place to work because of the people who are there. They seem to be able to attract just amazing talent, um, not only the reporters but the editors. New Zealand doesn't have a very heavy-handed editing approach, and I don't think I quite understood the value of an editor when I was living and and working here to the extent that, that I now do. Um, and maybe that's a time thing, or maybe it's a culture thing. Journalists here have a lot more, I think, power and autonomy to, you know, get stories into publications um, that don't maybe get changed or tweaked or morphed as much, or at least that was the case when, when I was reporting here. But, you know, working for Bloomberg, I've come to understand just how valuable that relationship can be when you really trust an editor and get to work with them very closely. And not only are they trying to ensure that the story is solid and bulletproof, and when you're writing about really sensitive topics where, as you you know, as you said, maybe these companies don't want this kind of information to come to light when you know you're going to get pushback, when you know you're going to get defamation lawsuits or you're going to get angry calls when it runs. Um, the, the editor has to look at the story through that lens, but also to look at it through the lens of how can we make this better? Is this story structured in the best way? Are you opening it with the right person? Could it potentially be better if you kept reporting for the next two weeks and found that one person that you need to lock that particular graph in place. You know, you've got quotes in here that aren't as strong as they could be. Could you call that person back and see if they can say something that's a bit cleaner, a bit more concise about this topic? That individual is someone who's quoted all the time in other media outlets. Can you find a different academic, you know, someone who maybe isn't as well known to be the expert in this piece? Or can you you know, go back to the individual that you talk to and ask again on this particular point. And having an editor who has the bandwidth and the time and the patience and the willingness to sit down with a journalist, it's just been a, a really cool experience for me. And I know that sounds super nerdy, but I think that when you, you'd understand this, that, you know, when you write a piece and you've put a lot of effort into it and you've agonised over every sentence and you've really tried to think about the structure and it's your it's your baby and it's like something that you've you could repeat it or say it in your sleep like you know you know how you know you know you know the whole story off by heart pretty much and then to have an editor just gloss over that maybe make some typo changes or fix a few grammatical errors or some style related stuff like you just don't get the satisfaction as what you get when someone's going to be like, no, hold on, I don't think you've got that in the right place or I think this could be better. And um, and that has, has, has just been, you know, the best part of working at Bloomberg for me is working with editors, and I'm going to throw your name out there, Robert, but Robert Friedman is so amazing. He will answer my calls when I'm just frantic and stressed and feel like I'm doing the wrong thing. And he will, um, he's got magic fingers. He'll touch the copy and it like comes out like gold, you know, just the turns of phrase that, that editors use. And I've actually really enjoyed that heavy handed editing approach, which I didn't think I would, because when I first went in, I felt not 
like kind of insulted, like, oh, wow, they thought that they needed to change my intro. Like, I'm not as good as what I thought I was. Or how embarrassing, like I can't even write a three-graph story without having editing changes. But now I've come to realize that the value of it. And I think that that's something that the American newsrooms do really well is lift reporters up and make your copy as strong as it possibly can be before it runs. And that's something that Business Week magazine is just so damn good at. They give you a voice as a journalist and they make you um, make you write in this conversational way. Every time I talk to one of the Business Week editors, I ask, like, how do you do that? How do you write in a way that makes readers care and understand? Because business reporting can be so boring sometimes, but yet they have this capacity to just, like, bring pizzazz into it, but to also make it, not not dumb it down, but to make people who live and work in this industry want to read it and people who don't understand the industry at all also want to read it. And that is just such a knack. That's an art. And I think that they do it exceptionally well. So I'm really grateful that I have the chance to, to write for a publication like that. And I am very happy that I landed at Bloomberg and just, you know, often feel very lucky that I get the opportunity to, to do this. You can really feel the care and that beautiful tension between like really like rock solid reporting, but also the flair and that kind of just the fact that they're all just, you can feel that they love it mm-hmm. and the and want to make it, as you said, accessible to everyone, but also like it is not, it's not done down. It's, it's, um, it's, in, it's, it's comfortable getting to the weeds, but it will take you there and then bring you out again. And that, that sort of this and the sense of humor and the way that, the headlines and the imagery and everything is just, it's just a masterclass. If you've not read it, um, it's its so worth uh, picking up a copy or subscribing. Olivia, thank you so much for this. As you can tell, this is, this is one I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, and, you know, yeah, your your story and, and what, what you've told us about about uh, your reporting journey, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it should be inspirational to, to any journalist listening. But, um, yeah, thanks so much for coming along. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Uh, that was Olivia Carvel on on the fold. Uh, I want to say a huge thanks to Tiahe Butler for recording and editing this podcast, to Jane Yee for the superb job she does running the Spinoff Podcast Network, to Vodafone, our sponsors, to Rachel LaRue, who um, helped out with uh, prep for this episode, and most of all, as always and ever, to the Spinoff members. Could not do this without you if you can be a member and and aren't please consider it it means so much um, to us Uh, and if you're not a member but want to help out in some other way please uh, rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify that also is a huge help too Ka Kia ora e te iwi, Tiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.